With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. On this week's episode of Circles Off, we're going to talk to a man that went from posting baseball picks on gambling Twitter to joining a large-scale betting operation. Barry Horse joins us today. We'll talk about his journey. We'll talk about the rule changes in Major League Baseball this season and a little bit of Bitcoin discussion as well. All that and more, Circles Off, starts now. Come on, let's go! On this week's episode of Circles Off, we get into a discussion about the state of cryptocurrency. The views in this recording are the personal views of myself, Johnny, and our guest, Barry Horse. The commentary is provided for general informational and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute financial or investment accounting advice. Your individual circumstances and current events are critical to sound investment planning. Anyone watching to act on this interview should do their own research or consult with a financial advisor. Welcome to Circles Off, episode number 95. Here on the Hammer Betting Network, Rob Pizzola joined by Johnny from Betstamp. What's going on? Nothing much, Rob. I'm excited for our, our guest today. Episode 95, who do we got? Uh, Miles Garrett would be the big 95. Nice helmet throw, Miles Garrett. <laughs> Miles Garrett helmet throw. The NHL, Matt Duchesne. Yes. AKA also a nice country singer. If you guys didn't know that, look it up. It's pretty cool. I didn't know that, actually. I he, should know he, that, he, I guess. He moved to Nashville. I think it's safe to say he's, he's safe in Nashville. He's um, learned the guitar, and he's been... Uh, actually performing at some bars in Nashville as a country music singer. Yeah. He's not bad. It's pretty good. I will say I'm not a country music fan, but I do, I do love Broadway in Nashville just for the vibes. Just like the party atmosphere. You know, it's great. It's great. I didn't know that about Matt Duchesne. As always, here on Circles Off, we are sponsored by Pinnacle. Pinnacle is the world's sharpest sports book and now available to bettors in Ontario. Find out what professional bettors have known for decades Pinnacle is where the best bettors play. You must be 19 or older, not available to those in the U.S. And once again, please play responsibly. For those tuning in here, you see myself and Johnny in the Blue Jay shirts. Baseball is upon us. Opening day on Thursday. No better guest to bring in than the man, the myth, the legend, you know him as Barry Horse. You can follow him on Twitter at Barry Horse underscore 29. Professional baseball better and more. We'll get into that. Now joins us on Circles Off. Barry Horse, how are things? Great. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Uh, obviously, baseball betting. I, I couldn't think of anyone better to bring on. Um, I'm very familiar with the story and went through your personal rise in the industry back in 2018. Uh, but let's hear a little bit more about you. For people that don't know, give us some of your own personal background and how you were first introduced to the betting space. So my my background's math, physics, computer science, which makes me a, a riveting podcast guest. <laughs> um, 
I, this is so stupid, but ESPN had this game called Streak for the Cash. I don't know if you guys, oh, 100%. Familiar, but played it every day. Yeah, to like, we all know it. Way dumb it down. I, I don't think there was any like money at risk, but it was basically you win 25 grand if you pick 25 games in a row, right? Something like this. And uh, 2013, I was a freshman in college working for a basketball company called Second Spectrum. If you have any NBA fans who, who listen to this, they'll probably know about it. But um, back then, it was literally just starting. There's like seven of us working. And uh, very inexperienced engineer. My, my job, you know, I, I eventually started doing like real stuff. <laughs> but at the start, it was more or less labeling and charting events. So to then run machine learning algorithms to identify these basketball events. So the company um, has all the XYZ data of all the players on the court and the ball. And you can make sense of identifying that's a pick and roll, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can say, when Chris Paul's the ball handler in a pick and roll, DeAndre Jordan's saying the screen. They score 1.2 points per possession if you blitz it or 1.6 if you switch, you know, yada, yada. And that's way better to do with a computer identifying those events than like a human labeling them all. But you need some training data. So I watched literally every single minute of Boston Celtic, Houston Rocket, Sacramento King and LA Clipper basketball games from 2012 through 2014. And uh, just in doing that basically had like every rotation mismatch strategy nailed on those four teams um and so like in my little pool with college friends i would always like win our little hundred dollar monthly bet for who had the longest streak because i would just bet all the nba games for that well not bet, but put on that um and then you know 2014 i started becoming like a lot more aware that like these betting markets existed and then left the company basically to start building my own models and betting so interesting um, how did it work out for you at the start yeah, I mean this this probably makes me very punchable, but it pretty much just worked. <laughs> like um I I have like zero gamble in me. I'm really not interested in like speculating. I don't say this from like a moral high horse. Like I if people can responsibly have fun, be my guest, but um it was purely like an academic endeavor and pretty rigorously tested when I started. I had I had like very little money. Um, you know, 19-year-old college kid, but the first thing well, maybe not, maybe like six months after like starting, learned out about uh, Bitcoin as a way to send money to and from sports books. Of the next 72 hours after hearing that word, I probably slept for like three and had every dollar to my name in Bitcoin after those three days. And um, then there was a, uh, my version of the kimchi premium was, there was a site called Local Bitcoins, which for those who don't know is more or less like Craigslist for Bitcoin. Yeah which sadly died this year. And, uh, but back in 2015, there were people willing to pay like pretty outrageous premiums to buy and sell Bitcoin in cash with anonymity. So like I would buy Bitcoin for $300 on Coinbase, drive up to Beverly Hills, presumably to some drug dealer or something who wanted to buy Bitcoin for 350 or $400 and rinse and repeat over and over taking the $1,500 premium and then had a bankroll from that. And then the sports did well for four years and, not on Twitter. <laughs> so let's get into that because um, you you basically blew up on gambling Twitter in 2018, uh, baseball season 2018. That's where a lot of people will have first heard your name. I think you did the deep dive podcast that year as well with Andy and Drew, got a little bit more exposure. Uh, but I, I want to dig into that a little bit. And you built a large following very quickly, uh, basically from zero to and everybody who was betting baseball, whether they were tailing you 
or they were a doubter of you or whatever was following your account. What led you to post your baseball numbers online in the first place? So I I was getting down basically just recycling. I I didn't even know this word existed, but essentially bearding through my friends in college offshores. Um, And then, you know, the whatever four places in the world that actually take a bet and basically grew to the point where like, I had naively thought like the ceiling was basically add up those four numbers. And that's like what you can bet on a game um, without understanding anything about how, what I've learned basically the last four or five years about how the industry actually works. And so basically, I mean, truly, like this is not like virtue signaling, like I'm this altruistic angel, like truly it was just, I can't make more on this. Somebody else might as well. Here you go. Like there is no, I'm going to eventually sell picks or do like a business of it. Like I had no intention other than like share, here's a community. Let's have fun. Like truly. Fair enough. Interesting. What was that overall experience like for you? Because I mean, that goes, you go from a guy who's just like, Frank, I mean, obviously you have your own personal life and your friends and, but you go from that to this massive following where, I mean, there were honestly days that I can recall where people would just, oh, Barry Horse hasn't tweeted yet today. Like people messaging you like, are you okay? Is everything good? And this and that, like having people glued to every single tweet, what was that like for you? Um, I mean, in, in the time and the moment, like very much like a fun dopamine hit, um, Upon further reflection, it was probably not the healthiest thing in the world for me to experience like that in tandem with the prior four years of not to sound like I haven't learned any lesson from this, but basically adding four digits to my bankroll and then like overnight going from like zero to 10,000 followers um, led to a very inflated sense of self and ego uh, upon further review. I, I probably had like some semblance of uh, awareness in the time of this, but, you know, and of, of course, like, it wasn't like I was out doing like cocaine with strippers every night. Like it was like the Barry Horse Twitter account was very much like the most exaggerated, like biggest douchebag version of myself on on Twitter. But, um, you know, that led to me thinking I was much smarter than I am basically. Um, so, you know, uh, pros and cons, I think like, a lot of it was largely positive. I met some like amazingly beautiful people. Um, even like to this day, like some of the most rewarding things I get are messages of people like thanking the explanation of how to do Bitcoin cold storage, et cetera, or, you know, those baseball games that year are still like very enjoyable for me to like connect with people in that way. So like it overall, like completely changed my life, but you know, there's good and bad. Um, How many people you think had like tweet notifications on for you back then? Did they exist at that time? I think, I think they did. Yeah. Yeah, they did. It's like, I mean, likely all of them. I mean, like I truly didn't post anything but games for like the first three or four months. So like, I don't know why anybody would follow me other than the games. So yeah, it was basically just like people following you, putting on the notification and then just being on their phone being like, Barry Orr's just tweeted a baseball pick, bet, bet, bet. That was literally like. It got to a point where everyone, even if they didn't like you or, you know, weren't, were there, there, there were people that were skeptical. I'll put myself in that boat at the same time. We still had to know what Barry horse was playing because there was going to be some market influence based off that, because this, this is like, we talk about, um, Adam Chernoff nowadays, right? When he was running simple handicap and 8,000 people in a telegram group who are going to all go bet his pick 
this was basically what was happening at the same time five years ago. So there was that, but there was a lot of doubters, including me. Um, and the big thing for me was you would routinely actually post what your edge was on the game, right? Whether that was like the, I can't remember if it was the Kelly stake or the prob, implied probability you gave the team of to win, but there was some notion of this is the edge that's on the game as well. It's not just a pick, or this is the amount of units that you should bet on it. And I was a successful baseball better at that time, and I'm not anymore. And what you were doing is very different in the sense that I never dreamed of having edges the size of the ones that you were posting. And I think that's what caused a lot of skepticism at the time. It's like, there's no way there's a 10% edge on this baseball side at this point in the day. Um, and I think that's was shared in a lot of the sharper community, which by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. Uh, sharp betters for whatever reason in this space are just preconditioned to think that everyone else is going to fail and that they're the best. Can't explain it. But what was different about your process at that time that you think separated you from everyone else? Well, let's first address that a big edge could exist in a liquid market is probably worth going over because like, maybe we can just start with, with this one example. And if we just disagree, it's not worth exploring sure. more, but did, did you two watch TCU Georgia national championship game of football? Uh, of course. I, I was actually out for a, a, a steak dinner with my wife. Okay. I was planning to watch the second half. But well, wait, Johnny, I was, I was, I watched it obviously. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's envision the exact same players, exact same teams, same coaches, same fans, same referees are all in that field one week later and the exact same game gets replayed. Is that line 13 and a half again? I mean, I would assume it'd be much higher than 13 and a half. Yeah, it's not 50, but maybe it's, I mean, I really truly believe 19 and a half, 20, 20, yeah. 20 and a half, I, I maybe 21. I was going to say around like, if you got to 21 and a half, that's tough. But yeah, 20 yeah. would be fine. Let's say 21. That's... um. Verse 13 and a half, that, that'd be if 13 and a half, if we assume was right, 21 would be something in the in the realm of like minus 270, like 72-ish percent. So if you're laying minus 110 on 13 and a half, 52%, yep. that's a 20% edge over a 40% ROI on a bet on what theoretically is the most liquid, well-informed, efficient market of the college football season. Yep, absolutely. So uh, clear, clearly no one, and if you disagree, that's fine. We just disagree. But like, I don't think clearly anyone objects to the fact that there could be a depth of edge that big at least once in a year. Maybe the suspicion is more that like, can 5% edge happen 500 times in a season? That's probably more the argument, but I would make the argument, you know, so we have the TCU game to demonstrate like the depth of edge is possible, but for how about the breadth, <laughs> this might ruffle feathers. Like the market is always wrong. And I know, <laughs> I know like very much the opposite is preached, but like just from, and I'm not trying to be overly nebulous and philosophical here, but like truly we cannot know what any line should be. And this is not like a human limitation, like Heisenberg uncertainty principle. If we measured every little last electron in every single player that was going to play on the game, we knew every single calorie that every coach has had in the last week. We knew like which players, girlfriends broke up with them the night before or not. And like, which we knew like the literal, like, biochemical information with every single little muscle cell and all the players' bodies. And like, we have some crazy third generation artificial general intelligence making sense of all of this, like incomprehensible of almost absurd level of information about all these players. Still in our 2023 level of understanding of quantum physics, there's some number of 
unknowable unknowns. This is not like a measurement problem. This is like a Bell's theorem. If you're familiar with Girdle's incompleteness theorem, this is a like near infinite like number of things that we just cannot speculate on or fully understand the probability of just down to like the wave functions of electrons and all these people that are playing the sport. So if all that's way overly nerdy, you can dumb it down to this very common phrase, which is all models are wrong, most are harmful, some are useful. So when I say the market's always wrong, that's not to suggest that it's not a highly useful tool to assume that the market is always right. Obviously, Spanky and now today with like some of these website services, there's like a thousand or more like little mini Spankies running around. I don't I don't say this like disparagingly, <laughs> like yeah. it works, like the proof's in the pudding, but it's still wrong. And so imperfect, you know, as imperfect. are all the models I use. Imperfect yeah. is okay. the term I would use. I know exactly what you're saying. Like we could, we never have, there's no one who's going to be able to project an accurate probability of every single game. But the, the point of, of the, any of any single game is my claim. Agree. I agree with you 100%. But and, and we have 10 not, cents of juice on both directions to help like cushion that so that they just need to be in the ballpark. But yes, well, the, mar the market being the most accurate doesn't mean the market's right. It's, uh, the market is obviously wrong because otherwise you would just win 100% of the bets at that closing line value in theory if the market was always right. It's not. It's just. And I, every I, final score would end up on the market price and the total price. Exactly. Well, well I truly believe that the market is just that's the most sorry. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's actually not my claim is that the games would all land. My, like, obviously we know the outcomes are probabilistic and there's a distribution of outcomes. Yep. My claim is that we can't even create that perfect distribution. I agree. And it might be off by a, a fraction of a, a cent or anything, but like even that, like we can claim the median outcome on a, on the Chiefs, Kansas City, um, Philly uh, Super Bowl is, yep. is pick in 51 or whatever it was. But it maybe it's pick minus 02 or pick minus 03, but it's not like the no vig price on the game by the market is not correct. Yep. I, I agree. I think not a single I, game in the history of sports. Well, what I, which what is I, like weird to think about. <laughs> uh, yeah. What I would uh, say in, in kind of like rebuttal to that is just that the, the market in general should be, that's why it's called like a, a efficient market hypothesis. And it's by no means like an actual proven theory is that the hypothesis is that the market gets sharper with all the info that it gets. And in theory, that that is, I believe that to be correct. Meaning, Barry Horse's model, when that was not being bet into the market, did not inform the market and give it additional information. When you did bet into the market and released it publicly, it ultimately made the baseball lines sharper. So it, it's like, I, I think what happened with Barry Horse, by the way, in the 2018 season was actually this. So a lot of people were like, oh, who is this kid? By the way, I'm, I'm younger than you, so I'm not uh, calling you a kid by any means. But at the time, I think a lot of the sentiment, as I was pretty deep on Twitter at that time, was this kid comes up, it's a com smart computer guy, genius, and he thinks he's just going to have like 10% edges in baseball, which doesn't exist. There's no way it's 10% edges. And I, I do think that you did have an edge on the market, but it was probably not 10%, but still it was directionally enough to be able to bet those out. If you had bet Kelly Staken at 10%, you probably would have ended up maybe going busto a little bit fa a like faster or something sure. like that. But realistically- uh, A million percent. Yeah, realistically, like if you had an edge, it just wasn't 10%. And I think a lot of people, because of the fact that you were like a new kid in the space, were like disguised like a fraud at that time. Does that make yeah. sense? So yeah, I mean, I can pull up the sheet too. I think this- implication that every game was 10% is like yeah. fully incorrect. I, like it, I maybe had 50 games that I thought were that big. And I mean, I don't know. 
if, if you had, if you had an automaton, like let's pretend, and I'm not saying I had this or currently have this, but pretend there's some like unthinkable level of consciousness, call it God, call it a third generation AGI, whatever you want to call it, that could know everything and could perfectly do everything. Would not 50 out of the 2,500 MLB games in a season be off by 10%? Yeah, I, I strongly too. suspect it would. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, we're all striving to high, have high precision and recall of those 10% games and, you know. Fair enough. On that college football example that you mentioned here, one another thing I was just going to, more of a question for you. So obviously if they replay, replay the game right now, you're like, okay, spread seven points more in either in the direction favoring Georgia, right? But you're saying that that game was just mispriced prior to the game, which I agree. But if the market priced it at the 13 and a half, anyone in the entire world had a chance to move that number either way. So how is that game? Like I, I get it's mispriced in actuality, but that is the best representation we have of price before the game kicks off. That's the best. That's the best we got. That's why I think people value the market so much. It's the best we have. You think that's correct? It's the or best easily available source. I'm, I mean, <laughs> it's the best easily publicly available source. Fair enough. And it's an unbelievably useful heuristic to believe that it's always right. And of course, there's fortunes that have been made by people just assuming that it's always right. I'm not suggesting no one attempt that, but it, it's still wrong. And so anyways, to get more direct to your question about like, why do I think this is another thing I seem to be like on an island about is um, this, this, uh, over this this implication that it's bad to to trust this black box idea of using machine learning and just throwing all these numbers into a model, which first off, I think is very much straw manning what machine learning even is. True. But let's assume that it's not. And I'm not trying to get like overly spiritual and weird here, but or like convince anybody of religion or anything. But I, I there's two really good examples that I think might help at least have people like consider a different perspective about this. Um one is from a podcast series with Robert Breedlove and Mike Hill about the best book I've ever read called um, Leela by Robert Piercek. And Mike Hill goes over this, this experiment or example where he's basically suggesting that it's, it's a wild level of arrogance from human beings to assume that we have like the highest level of consciousness that could be had. And so he takes the example of imagine like a very like, beautiful picture perfect couple in new york city walking down the street looking at the skyscrapers they see plane planes in the air this beautiful sunset like look at this we innovated all of this baby i love you we're feeling these emotions man is it sick to be a human we're the best and he compares it to i think he had he was doing like crossfit or something and so he gets these massages on his legs when his, his legs get sore and he compared it to imagine for a second your two red blood cells going through his vessels going up to his heart down to his leg they, like us, they have like a daily job. They have an idea of like night and day. They they go up to work and down back to the home. And, you know, maybe there's some human imperceivable level of consciousness between the two red blood cells that are communicating like, hey, isn't this fun? We're running through this blood vessel right now. And then they feel like some Latino dude on his back rubbing his shoulder or leg or whatever. And all this blood just starts rushing throughout the blood vessels. And like, what the fuck's going on? I have no idea what that is. And so... This, you know, I live in Central America now and like this is very common um, in most of their religions in South Native Americans in North America and South America is to give like a tremendous amount of value to hurricanes, weather, storms of some higher level of consciousness. And I'm not trying to convince anybody of any religion or anything, 
but just to suggest that it could totally be likely that humans are not the post like absolute maximum level of knowing everything about everything. And so what I really recommend people to do if they feel this way about machine learning is watch, it's a 90 minute video. It's a movie called AlphaGo on YouTube. It's free to watch. Um, it's about this team of AI engineers who built the software, I think called AlphaGo to beat who basically is the Tiger Woods of Go. If you don't know what Go is, it's a highly strategic game, much more strategic than chess. It's nearly infinitely more impressive than a computer beating a human in chess. And when you get through this movie somewhere near the middle, in, in, in Go, you play kind of like tennis, you play five sets. And so the first set or the first game, whatever you want to call it, the first match, halfway through, the computer makes this like completely unfathomable decision to move. I, I don't understand the game well enough to explain it to you, but they, this, this is being broadcast on TV. All of the commentators, play-by-play -play announcers, the AI team itself behind the software, even the, I forget the guy's name, but the guy who's like the Tiger Woods of Go, he kind of like smirks at it. Everybody in the room like gasped at how idiotic that move seemed. And they go through and play the game and the computer dominates him and destroys him. And when they do like the um, post game post review or whatever, yeah. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. That single completely unfathomable by human moves was the single move that swung the entire match. And so I bring all the people are like, what the fuck is this kid talking about? I came here for sports. So um, let's go to sports. So in 2006, I think it was 2006, there's a set of baseball data that came out called Pitch FX. Yep. It gave you the X and Y of where the ball crossed over the plate and the movement profile. So how much it moved horizontally or vertically. And nobody even uttered the words seam shifted wake until 2019. And so from 2006 until 2019, all of our understandings of pitch movement, we dumbed down into being one of two things, gravity and something called the Magnus effect, which describes how an object rotates through a fluid. And so using just the XY of the ball and where the ball was released from, we could infer what the spin rates on all these pitches were because we didn't even fathom that there could be some other effect we're not even thinking about. Basically, the Magnus effect is like if you imagine like a, a perfect like Garrett Cole four-seam fastball rotating like this through the air. Guy has a baseball to... on the screen for anyone listening. <laughs> yeah. He's rotating. And if you imagine like the seams like perfectly rotating um, end over end on like a zero neutral uh, axis of rotation, that would it wouldn't quite offset gravity, but it would come very close to offsetting gravity. And this is why hitters describe observing something like rise in a fastball. It's not actually happening. Gravity is still stronger, but this wake behind the ball offsets that. Same thing with like a 12-6 curveball would be the absolute opposite. It, it top spins basically towards the plate. And anyways, um, what we now understand is we were completely missing a third force on the ball called seam-shifted wake, which like pitch development labs and everybody around baseball has been all about the last three years or so. And we didn't even know this was like remotely existent until 2020 when we had Hawkeye cameras starting to track. So like the, the track man for like baseball savant and all this was not enough to tell us any of this, even in 2016, when that came out, there's still a three-year gap. And anyways, I'm saying all this, people are like, okay, cool. Like I'm, I'm happy about these three examples. I'm just here to make money. It, it seems very likely to me. And it, like, I, it's hard to like rigorously prove this is exactly. And of course, like, there's several dozen other things like this. And of course, if I thought this was like the end all be all unique source of my edge, I would not be talking on it with people, a thousand people listening on a podcast or whatever. But it seems very likely to me 
that one of the things my system was possibly picking up on without giving it the name of seam shifted wake was this impact of basically being able to move the ball differently than with just Magnus affecting gravity. And so um, basically it's a multi-decade old question in sabermetrics about uh, how much impact does a pitcher have on quality of contact? Can pitchers induce weak contact or should we just all throw it out to randomness? So on one extreme, you have FIP field and independent pitching, which just assumes any ball in play is just random, has nothing to do with the pitcher. Like home runs, walks, and strikeouts are the only thing we care about. You have something called Sierra is a little more in the middle, skill interactive ERA. Basically, it makes the assumption that if you get a bunch of strikeouts, that means you're missing bats. That means you're probably likelier to miss the bat partially or hit it on the weak part. But that's obviously a poor assumption. Like there's endless examples. Hunter Green on the Cincinnati Reds is a great example. Like he gets a ton of strikeouts, but I do not think it's at all random that his contact quality is very poor. And so anyways, I'll end my ramble soon, but basically understanding this, in my opinion, has been a huge, and you've seen it in the market the last three years since we started to understand it better, is that seam shifted wake very likely has a huge impact on quality of contact suppression from pitchers and that it's not random. And, you know, pitchers like Kyle Hendricks can allow a ton of balls in play and predictively still be good at pitching. Sorry for the No, no, no. This is actually really interesting because the question I asked was, what was different about your process at that time that separated you from everyone else? And I think this is extremely good insight. So uh, the market- I could, I could dumb it down to two words and say machine learning, but that fair, was more fun. Fair enough. <laughs> no, I, and that's really good because it, it actually shows the scale at what you were thinking at at that time. And I bet baseball successfully for years. And quite frankly- it was nowhere near the level of sophistication at what you're describing right now because it didn't need to be at the time. Like we had projection companies, Steamer, Zips, um, that were posting projections at that time, which were actually good enough to beat market if you were looking at, you know, proper weighting of both for some specific players. Now you would obviously learn, okay, Steamer really likes Dan Heron and you know, he's not the the type of pitcher they think he is. Let's maybe adjust his projection. And you could do that for probably 20 pitchers in the league and have a very successful baseball model. And then over time, we started getting more and more data. Uh, We started to get the StatCast data uh, uh, years back as well, you know, barreled balls and stuff like that, which kind of provides a different lens and a different filter in which you could look at things. I remember the first conversation we ever had um, in person, which was MIT Sloan, I believe 2019, um, where I first met you. And I asked you this exact same question that I have asked you now. And we chatted for a long time and it was actually a very valuable chat for me because it provided some perspective as to what other people or like fresh, newer, different thinking minds and how they're thinking about the game. And we probably talked for two hours about pitch framing in baseball. Um, and I was doing pitch framing at that time and incorporating into my models, but my numbers or who I would consider to be a good framer were very different from yours at the time. So my takeaway from that conversation was going home and spending months on, okay, what is Barry Horse possibly doing here? Um, and I thought that was pretty cool um, to be able to you know, go from candidly thinking, I don't want to call you, say that I was thought you were a fraud when you came on the scene, but definitely thought that you were, um, best terminology was thought more of yourself than maybe I did of you. You weren't wrong. 
okay, fair enough. But ha- that one conversation really put things into perspective for me. And then I got to a point probably in 2020 where I'm like, this is basically going to be like a full-time thing for me. If I really like, I'm going to have to invest a ton of time into originating baseball because of how competitive the market is. And I, I got to the point where I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore, but uh, I thought your answer was great. And it's per- really provides some perspective in terms of how an originator needs to think in the space, because uh, go ahead. I was going to add two quick thoughts before I forget. Um, one is towards Johnny's efficient market hypothesis thing and sort of melding it with what I think I was doing and still do is, you know, that holds when there's like thousands of entities betting tons of money. I mean, you guys can tell me if you observe different things, but for me, I think there's like, depending on what you mean by real money, there's like three or four people betting real money on base. It's not like this, like there's 10 unbelievably like high-end Harvard engineers on every single team. And there's a thousand of those teams like that. I don't observe that existing. You guys can tell me if you see something different. And so part of the reason I say that is just with that small number of people who are moving, there's plenty of games who it doesn't need to be like a Mike Trout level player. It could be something like Nico Horner on the Cubs. Who's like a really solid, pretty underrated player, but he's not, you know, like some crazy star, but maybe his backup's really bad. Maybe it's worth like eight cents if he's out. No one was expecting him to be out. Everyone who's betting baseball in the middle of summer, usually like, closes their office at lunch or something. And like that comes out at 2 PM. No one else cares. Okay. I already leaned the clubs by five cents. Now he's out. Maybe it's a 13 cent edge and I'll bet it. And you know, there's like literally hundreds of those in a season. So like part of it's just like picking up on that. I should say since again, sorry, Rob for cutting you off. But one other thing is you guys are familiar with the Pareto distribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So for the listeners who aren't basically like 80% of your outcomes will come from 20% of the decisions or um, 20% of your stocks will represent 80% of your gains. 80% of the problems in your life will come from 20% of the decisions you make, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, rough numbers. And, you know, I could probably like way overly dumb this down and say all of my big seasons, basically, I have two or three very strongly held, very anti-market opinions on like a couple players or teams. And then the rest is just picking up trash, like those little false and edges on Nico Horner that just add up when you do it 400 times. And then, you know, like my year on Twitter was more or less, I bet on Tampa Bay, literally every time they were an underdog and won like 30 units doing that. You can dumb it down to that. Like, you know, and like, I mean, you can say like, no, like the market was right, but like, I genuinely believe this before the season, genuinely believed it throughout the season and still believe it today. That was like a fringe in 2018, like a fringe 91 team being priced as like, a complete 70, 75 win non-contender irrelevant team for like the entire year, just because no one knew any players on the team, but like, and was the market that efficient? I don't inefficient. I don't know, but like, I just genuinely believe there was like a 10, 15 win gap on teams like that. And there's plenty in reverse too. I think it, I think, I mean, I have different perspectives, me and Johnny bet in very different ways. Right. And, um, you, you Barry horse, you probably be familiar with uh, the people that, or the group that moves my, action for the most part, but it over the years kind of gave me a different perspective on how efficient the market is or not. And I think it's very dependent on a number of different factors, right? Um, like I bet hockey predominantly and for years there was candidly no one else that was betting a lot of money on hockey. So yeah, my closing line value numbers looked great. And when I was going through a rough stretch, I'd be like, oh, I'm getting closing line value, but it didn't really matter because it was kind of creating my own closing line value. And there was nobody who was going to bet that back ever. So it was mm-hmm. like, okay, how do I evaluate whether this is good or not? 
Um, and you're talking about, you know, groups that bet baseball and how there's very few of them. That's kind of the same thing that I see. And we've talked to people candidly off air and never would disclose their names or anything like that. Or like, we don't care about our closing line value. We care about, we have our models, we have our numbers, we're going to bet them. There's going to be people that disagree with them, but we're higher on these teams than others. And we know that, and we think that they're right. So I, I, this is kind of what I love about sports, honestly, is that everything is a little bit imperfect and take some deduction and each passing year, I think I learn more and more about the space and can figure things out a little bit more. But I don't think that there's one right answer. Um, and I, I think that there's people that can have two firmly different beliefs on the market and still both be very successful at what they do. Like there could be people that just don't respect the market. Oh, so-and-so is going to go and move this line. Why should I give a shit about his opinion? He's just posting a bunch of short-term trends on his Twitter account. Why do we value what he thinks about on a game? Um, and then there's people that they do, and they're successful in doing that as well. So I, I mean, it's just really an interesting conversation. Um, your perspective is interesting as well. But yeah, there'd be, there'd be many times back in the day where, you know, you'd get even a bunch of late steam on games, right? Baseball, when you were betting in 2018, there was one predominantly large group where it's like, okay, if they like a game, they're going to bet it. The line is going to move a lot and it ain't going to move back, period, because of the most respected mm -hmm. group in the space. Does that mean that they're right every single time and moving those to the correct spots? No. People who were fading that steam at post made a killing over the course of those years. So um, I, I think it's... The, it, like the space as a whole um, and the whole discussion about whether or not like the closing line has a ton of value. Um, there could be a lot of different perspectives on it. And a just, lot just so I don't get clipped, I should make it clear. I think the closing line value has an immense amount of value. It is an extraordinarily useful tool and it would be wildly arrogant to ignore any move or any price or any closing line ever. And the market should always have some non-zero level of respect, but you know, if you know Dylan Gabriel is out against Oklahoma, 100% he's out. And, you know, you can lay Texas seven and under 65 on the day of the game. And then Oklahoma goes out and throws him out there and the game moves. And then Oklahoma goes and pretends like he's going to play for an hour and everybody on Twitter is speculating and moves back. You should bet more if you know he's out. So, sure. And I, th I think we all agree on that. But here. The, with the closing line value argument, the, the one thing that I think maybe you're overlooking a little here is, is like, I've said it before, it always does become the most efficient tool over time. In a short period of time, it could be inefficient, right? But what you said here is like betting a massive group, not going to name any names, whatever, but massive group betting the baseball market, moving everything, probably doesn't have a big edge or maybe only has an edge up to a certain level on the openers. Move everything way too far. You're like, people fading that at post made a lot of money. Exactly what I'm saying though is that group was over betting at negative edges. Yep eventually had to stop playing positions out that much because yep. they kept losing and other people who were playing back on those positions made more money and was like, we got to play back further because we're going to make money. And eventually it converges at a level. It's not the uh, accurate predictor of the game, but yep. over an infinite amount of sample size, it's always going to add up as long as the sports books are adjusting based on the positions, which they do. I, I'm going to disagree with, and I'm not, we can move on after this, but just no, no, one I'd thing I haven't seen discussed yeah. on any of these podcasts is, um, theoretically envision this like end boss of betting who like 
has the nuts on every single game, has infinite liquidity, bets whatever he wants. He reverses every game to get an amazing price first. Theoretic, and you know, this is not a theoretical, I've observed this is like very often it's not rare for a group to then go basically hide their CLV by basically if Dumb. listeners are probably familiar with the idea of reversing a game yeah. to like, say you like Houston minus 120 against the angels. You're definitely going to love Houston minus 111. So you'll max bet angels, bring it down, bet it. They'll move back to minus 120. What I'm explaining is basically the opposite of getting Houston minus 111, it goes to minus 120, and then banging the Angels again after, so that it closes 111, you know? So anyways, I, I, no, so I, just, I, understand I haven't seen saying, that brought up I can't really much, give but. out the info here, but we'll talk after, but like there's other ways that that gets offset as well. And also remember, people are greedy as well. So yep. if you want to get the most amount of money down, you're never going to do that quietly, or you're going to do that via people who are then going to eventually leak that back. So it never just fully works like that. And I'll say it off air because I don't want to say this on the air, but I will talk after okay. and I have, I have a counterpoint to that. All right, uh, Barry Horse. So you go from Twitter. Oh, hold up, hold up. I'm yes. sorry. This has nothing to do with that, but this is for everyone who is DM me or messaging me saying, how do I do my own Monte Carlo sim? I just <laughs> learned Excel. Here's what I got to throw out to you. I'm sorry, it's a sad reality. You just heard what Barry Horse had to say on his MLB model. Let me just point this out, okay? We're now in 2023. He was doing this back, basically, what would you call, when did you start originating? 2016? 17? 2014. 2014. So in 2014, I don't even, I don't even know what the fuck he was saying, to be honest. He's something <laughs> wakeboard surfing pitch, seam wake. I don't even know what that is. And I'm telling you, this guy had that predicted in his model back in 2014. He was taking into account all these pitch effects, everything, framing, whatnot. And there are people today who message me, say that they just pulled projections online and threw it into a Monte yeah. Carlo. They scent. exported CSV from fan graphs. Yes. So <laughs> all this to say, if that's what Barriers had in 2015, imagine what he has now. Imagine what all the top betters. And then as he mentioned, Barriers is one person betting baseball. There might not be a million, but there might be 10. There might be 12 seriously betting MLB. All of them have or have access to similar people, resources, machine learning models, different models that all have factored in things that you probably have not even ever thought of. So it is foolish as a person who's brand new to come in and think that you could beat the market with a really shitty Monte Carlo sim. And that is why I typically preach the market efficiency model as a little more important than it is. If you get to a level where you're a computer science whiz whiz kid and you're like oh i'm actually doing this for real and you think you can beat all the stuff barry horse just said plus his last eight years of research then you don't have to worry about the market how's that for a for a saying i think that's fair easier barry horse a lot, lot better on the market efficiency stuff yeah all right let's get into the next uh, aspect Rob. well so you you go from essentially being a, a kid as you self-described yourself on twitter uh posting numbers to working for a large scale betting operation. Can you discuss how that came to be essentially? Uh, <laughs> I, I got a DM on Twitter vaguely like, Hey Barry, thanks for all the winners. Um, I'd love to take you and a buddy on an all expenses paid golf trip to, I won't say the country. And, uh, Figured 95% chance is a fake, 5% chance they're trying to kidnap me or scam me or something. But, uh, you, know, you know, enticed that question. We went further uh, and somehow convinced my friend to come with me. And we ended up going down. And um, 
basically was told like, Hey, uh, you're, you're pretty naive. Like you're, you're beating baseball within three hours of the game and you're posting college football on Friday morning for Saturday games and crushing. Like if you really do crush, this is like worth a lot more than I think you think it is. Um, and you know, it sounded like hocus pocus and like, kind of like too good to be true for me. So I spent like really like probably like three or four months basically saying no a bunch because it sounded fake. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, had enough evidence after football to see that it was like real and worth pursuing. And, um, that's what I've been doing for four years. All right. Um, I, I think people are very interested in how a large scale betting operation works. We do get these questions that come in on our Q and A's that we do. Obviously I'm not going to ask you to disclose anything that's going to, you know, reveal too much, but let's start with potentially what a typical day would look like for you right now. Um, I'm up at like five usually, then uh, gym, meditation, and then watch the screen. I have my numbers already and send in orders. If there's stuff to bet before lineups, send up if there's after lineups, then do a figure the next week. But I, I'm really not like, this is not like... Um, to cover legal space. I'm truly like not involved in any of the betting. It doesn't interest me. I don't say this from like a moral high horse, but like, it's just not, I'm into math and sports and that's what I stay into. Anyone who's followed you back from 2018 would know that that's the case. I, I don't think you've ever been, you've been pretty open that you're not really super interested in actually like the, the betting portion and more the, the modeling. And I think Rob has too, pretty much. I mean, I, I don't, I don't do most of my own betting. Um, now with legalized gaming in Ontario and all the different sports books, for sure, I'm an idiot not to with the amount of access that I have. But for the most part, I think I'm kind of in the same boat as, as Barry, where I would just, it's basically send out an order, right? I like the Red Sox up to minus 135 and a bunch of people bet it on my behalf and they give me a fill. And essentially, I think that's what's happening with you. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. I should say like, um, this market really is like a lot smaller than I thought it was and is probably shrinking at the top. I, I don't want to be too doomer and I'm not trying to inspire false hope either, but I truly believe it's actually probably never been easier to make five or six and maybe even seven figures in a year betting. But like from my observation of how deep this market is, I see this implication for people that you can just like click a button and bet a million dollars on an NFL spread on Sunday and like, I need to meet someone who can do that that simply. Like, it, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you two do, but like, there's a lot that goes into like making that happen. And like, people have this idea that you just, all right, you have an edge in a real market and now you just go live on a yacht. It's That's like possible. It's really possible. A, a much, a much smaller market than I think most people think. It's hard to get down like a crazy amount. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is not my area of expertise. I know what my limits are within betting. I'm never going to be betting a million dollars in a game probably not betting $100,000 a game either, just you know, being honest with the audience. But I agree with you. I mean, sometimes it's like we want to bet so-and-so game and we'll go up to X amount uh, and we just we can't fill that order, period. There's just not enough mm -hmm. books that have that liquidity to fill it. That's just the nature uh, of the game. Well, it, it's okay. different when you actually factor in pricing, right? Because you yes. can always fill a bet. It's just yes. a matter of the price you're going to get. I was just going to say that, and it, it actually might be worth for listeners like to quickly go over an example of like just how severe that can be in a year. Um, so, you know, Spanky, I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you have an idea of who Spanky is. If you don't, he's a highly successful sports better has a multi-decade career, which by the day becomes more impressive to me to have that type of longevity. Um, but he has a podcast called Be Better Betters. 
maybe two months ago or something. He has like basically a 45 minute monologue, more or less bitching about how shitty this is. Um, you know, we treat winning as trivial, but it, it's really not. Betting is like the tandem and the trade-offs between the two can make either of them hard. If you want to bet more, it's still going to be harder to win. Um, collecting is nearly impossible. It involves like basically spending your life networking to go meet some like shady guy in New Jersey who runs bet Island 784.net and how you should like half tell these half truths to him about why you should book my games and then like convince him like you're going to come from this IP address. It's just like all this whole game. It's, it's very small, like, and uh, you know, it, it might be worth just going through a quick example of just how much that price interferes with when you try to bet more. Um, so if, if you take like a, a random example, like say you're going to win 80 units on a thousand bets in a year, um, but you want to bet significantly more than you can just if you bet at Pinnacle, Chris, bet online in Circa. Um, one way you might be able to do that is essentially like double bet or like allow people more or less to scalp you, take a worse price. In, in the same way you guys preach like price sensitivity and shopping for the best line, any of your listeners who have done that when the whole market's minus 110 and you find a rogue minus 07 have no doubt observed like the benefit of doing that. Yep. Well, the reverse is like equally as damaging as it is powerful in the first place. So if the whole market is minus 110 and you end up effectively laying minus 113 or minus 114 to fill like an imaginary non-existent bad number to get down, that's going to, on let's say it's minus 114, four cents on a thousand games is going to be 20 units. So your 80 becomes 60 pretty quick. Now that's easily worth it if you're able to bet one and a half times more or more than that, because 60 times one and a half is 90. Mm -hmm. Now you might also like start looking for people to cross with or fill your orders and you're going to end up more or less experiencing this selection bias of the games where everybody in the world agrees with you are going to return at a higher ROI than the games when everyone in the world who has influence disagrees with you. So like I said, if if you think you have 8% ROI on a thousand games, what that really means is you have two subsets of games, one of which is negative 2% ROI and one of which is plus 18% ROI and, or, you know, infinite number of subcategories. And you end up being like increasingly exposed to the bad games if you start allowing that to happen. And, you know, that's worth it to a degree because if you, maybe you still win and I use negative two as an example, but maybe you still win a little on the disagreement games and it's worth it to get a little more down, but it's going to disproportionately affect what you expect to return. So this is really hard to theorize just like four cents on a thousand games. We know it's 20 units, but depending on the degree you do it, you might end up at the trade-off where you might want to sacrifice something like 20 games on a thousand units again. Yeah. So now you're at 40 on thousand, but that's worth it. Everybody three or four X the amount. And now you're stuck with all these accounts that you can't risk burning. You've farmed all these like amazing partners who, sorry, is my audio messed up? No, you're good. Okay. So now you're stuck with basically having to only bet games where it's not going to get crazy CLB. So you find out Aiden O'Connell's out for Purdue against Florida Atlantic. You can bet FAU plus 21, but it's going to close 17 and they're going to nearly win the game. That's going to look horrible in any account. No one's going to take that anyways. And so you can't even really bet the games that are going to be moving fast. Plus you're stuck with like, there's not a ton of maneuverability. It's not like you just click a button. So if you have 20, 25, hundred different movers where you have to text out the game to a bunch of people, it's not like I find out Mike Trout is out 30 minutes before it's public. I can click a button and be in. And so you're basically forfeiting something like a hundred or so injury games that would return 15, 20%. I don't know. Let's round down and say 15. Now that 40 on a thousand becomes 25. Yeah. And now let's say you're waiting until the very last, you're going to be the last person in the world to bet. You're getting everyone sloppy seconds. You're, you're not betting games that you would have otherwise because 
maybe you would have laid minus 110 and it was minus 108 in the morning, but then someone bet it before you and now it's minus 113 and it's donezo. You're missing like something like 100 games. Again, these are games where you match with people that you're not even touching that would have maybe returned 15%, let's say. And you end up at something like 10 units on a thousand games. And that's still worth it if you're betting 10x more than you would have to get your 80 on a thousand because 10 times 10 is 100 and that's more than 80. But what you've done is created an extremely fragile system where with each of those four sacrifices, you're widening like the distribution of what could happen. And so while technically on paper, if you have a near infinite bankroll, it's technically plus EV and your expectation in doing all of these decisions is technically more valuable. You're exposing yourself to a situation where conceivably you could have a year where you deserve to win 80 units by betting like a normal person and then deserve to win 40 units and feel like over two years, two years, you deserve to be up 120 times, you know, not a small number. You can still bet like real stuff on these games. Um, and instead you're down or barely up or flat or whatever over two years. It's a very fragile like situation to make all those trade-offs. So I just, I'm not really seeing the room to bet like crazy amounts on any of these sports and actually win and then sustain it for a decade. Um, and I see it shrinking year by year. So I would dissuade anyone from thinking that this is like a really big pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's very, very well said. I think everyone should hit the back 30 seconds button two <laughs> times and re-listen to that. Um, super valuable. And if you if you are unaware of what Barry Horse is talking about here, these are challenges that really only come after you, know, you might get limited at a few sportsbook accounts or after, you know, you can't get enough volume on your own that you have to start expanding, right? So it doesn't happen to everyone. It's a very few percent, a very low percentage of people will ever even endure something like that, but extremely well said. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think also one of the inherent challenges with betting at, at the scale that you're betting at is that oftentimes you're going to get your biggest positions when everybody else disagrees with you. And then you're kind of like on your lonely island of like, we can fill x amount on this game because so and so likes the opposite so and so likes the opposite and you end up having at least this is my experience maybe it's not yours but maybe 20 to 30 games a year that could potentially decide your entire season because they're so much larger than everything else i'm not, i'm not sure if you've personally experienced this in the baseball space maybe it's a little bit different now than it was previously but um we did notice that back in the day where it's just like, okay, everybody likes the Angels. We don't. Our number, what are we missing here? Um, people will fill us on our A's bet. And that just brings it to like a whole nother stress anxiety level, I would say. And I should say like exploring what the ceiling on this is, isn't all about like just, I need to be a billionaire. Like I want all these amazing things. It's as Spanky goes through really well in that podcast. Like there are so many sucks and drains on your life by trying to pursue this that there better damn be some like pot of gold at the end of the rainbow to make it worth it. And I truthfully, I'm like just really not seeing that. And I see the pot shrinking through here. I mean, it fosters like so much, like I saw this was a thing on, on Twitter the last couple of days about like, it's, it's so small that I observe people thinking they have to like shit on others in order to have their piece of the pie because the pie is so small. The only way to be full is to take pieces of other people's pieces. And so, you know, like, it's it's fostering to me like a ton of like negativity because of how small it is and it's kind of like if georgia and alabama are recruiting the same kid you know the alabama coaches have to say like what's wrong with georgia instead of what's right about alabama and i observe that with betting partners too it's like i want to root for you johnny and rob and spanky and, and ten, i want to root for writing i want everyone like 
I don't like, I guarantee you Justin Herbert's rooting for Jalen Hurts to get absolutely paid this summer. And maybe he wants to make $1 more, but you know, because our pie is so fucking miniature, we have to like fight and bitch about each other. And it's, you know, a pretty depressingly small market. But in theory though, and I agree with you. I don't want. I don't root for other people to succeed, and especially like sorry, you don't, don't root for other people. To succeed. I don't root for other people to fail. Oh, what was I, what I was going to say? Um, but especially the way I bet, there's not really a need for for that. But for someone who's originating, like let's say Barry Horse right now, let's say you originate baseball, you are going to win the most if the other large groups in the space who are also betting hundreds of millions of dollars lose money. Because the sports books right now do not take that large of positions. Obviously, they're taking positions, but to think that you're just going to win against all sports books doesn't really add up. You're going to have to have, let's say, I'll go simplicity sake, 100K. If you have 100K down the Brewers, they're facing the A's, and another group has at that same sports book 100K down and they kept moving the market back, the sports book's going to make their 10K in juice. The other group's going to lose 100 and you're going to make your 100. No one's going to be. Sportsbook doesn't care. They're going to keep doing that all season long or you can cross direct. But the only way you're actually going to make millions of dollars per year, or I guess maybe not 1 million, but like hundred million dollars. You could do that in a year if someone else loses a hundred million. If not, you can't do that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I do think like the idea of like rooting against people or like needing their partners to then like come to you. And I know that's not your point, but like just to this topic, I do think all of the calculations around like the raw numbers of like, maybe it makes sense is like very high time preference thinking and very tunnel vision on just the bets. One example I can think of, I don't even know if he remembers this, but if you look at the comments to this video, I'm sure you'll see like, maybe not, but I'm guessing you'll see some negative comments like roasting me for pretty infamously having two horrendous months of baseball four years ago after being wildly overconfident and arrogant about how I thought my season would go. And in the midst of that, that was like a really challenging time of my life. Like I'm sure people can like start to imagine. And I know this is all like first world problems. I get it, but that was like a really tough time for me. And I just vividly remember Spanky and a couple others, like publicly standing up for me saying like, he's a nice kid. He means well, like he's running bad. Why are we rooting against people? And people are rooting against me because they think if I lose my like betting partners will defect and then they can come recruit them. Yeah. And I think what they're, and like Spanky could have thought that way, but he didn't. And I really appreciate that and will never forget that. And the world is round. And maybe that comes back in some like unforeseeable thing. Maybe it's something very direct. Like I've recommended 50 friends to go sign up for Spank Odds and five of them are going to convert when he starts charging. Or maybe it's like not to be too nebulous and down the road, but like maybe his kid loves Bitcoin and I've start some Bitcoin company and in 10 years he wants a job and I don't forget that. And like, I just think in general, all of us can root for others, like, especially on that, like defection of betting partners and stuff. Like I want people who bet like smaller stuff with Johnny to do really well, not because I don't want him to, like, I want them to have a, a good experience knowing that partnering works. And then maybe one day there's some world where their bankroll grows a lot. And now they want to bet something that maybe is a lower, little higher risk, but a little higher reward. And like, it makes more sense to bet something bigger like baseball or whatever. And they had a good experience with Johnny and remembered it. And so I'm rooting for them to do well. Um, yeah. Well said. In, in general, I mean, life is quite long. We all look at our ages right now and pe people say life is short, but obviously it's, a, it's the longest thing that anyone does individually. So if you look at it, life is so long, you're eventually going to run back into people. You don't want to, you definitely don't want to fuck people over, but I, I think, you know, rooting for people to fail is definitely 
it's almost like you're also just bringing negativity into your own life. Like when you're, it takes life, effort. Yes, like, it does. We're biologically evolved to root for each other and collaborate. That's like a pretty human superpower. Like we were smaller, weaker, and more feeble than Neanderthals. We outlasted them because we worked together and collaborated and had these civilizations. Like we, we all prefer this. It, it, you're, you're spending energy to like hate and root against others. And it seems not worth it to me. That's spoken, spoken like the guy, like a guy who would be a massive Bitcoin believer, by the way, seriously, I think that those, those are a lot of people who are like Bitcoin truthers have the same mentality as you in, in a, in a sense, especially people who got in early. We'll get into that in a second for now. Wanted to get your opinion on this. We cannot let this podcast go by and not ask you about some of the rule changes that are seemingly going to impact Major League Baseball this year, or maybe not. We'd love to get your thoughts on kind of like, you know, if you want to go through what rule changes you think might have an impact, which ones don't, and any info you can give will be greatly appreciated for our baseball listeners. There's the four, I think, that are being widely or highly talked about, which are the ban on shifting, which we've known for years now, the pitch clock changes. We have the larger bases, which is actually decreasing the distance between certain bases as well. And then we have the new pickoff rule. Um, I know you've done a Twitter thread on this, but they're frankly quite lengthy and some people would want to get your opinion in audio form as well. So um, let's start with, do you think that the impacts of these rule changes are being um, over-accounted for by the average better? Truthfully, I don't know how they're being accounted for, but it, I think it's decently easy to do like just some ballpark math on what they're all worth. And it comes out to like, not nothing, but like pretty close to nothing. And just in my experience of the last 10 years of doing this, people tend to overrate things like this. So that might happen, but I don't know how they're being perceived, to for, be honest. For the average better, like, you know, someone who might be looking at player props, something like that how would they be able to potentially gain an edge? And, and obviously we would like to give out something that maybe is not going to ruin your uh, full market stuff. Sure. Um, maybe we can start with the shift. Um, I, I suspect this might be, you know, something on the order of an, an, ex, an extra hit per team per month or something like this. So if, if you look at my name on Twitter with shift, uh, I'll walk through all the math. I don't have all the numbers memorized, but um more or less the reason for this and, and, you know, in terms of like run scoring, basically nothing. I, I think um, most people, because it's so like visual and it, it's so like easy and obvious and jarring when there's just like a literal third person on a different half of the diamond that you're not used to seeing. It's like, Oh, that was all because of the shift. And it's, it's missing what has been like a much more powerful version of the shift, which has been outfielders mostly aligning more deep, but also shaded in different directions depending on the hitter. Um, but there's pretty strong evidence that, the MLB in total has been over shifting for the last handful of years. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't a small number of teams like the Astros, Dodgers, Rays, et cetera, who have done it properly, but especially against right-handed hitters, it seems like it's been actually a net negative by fielders to be shifting the amount they've been doing it the last two or three years in, in baseball. Um, the reason for this is for both handed hitters, um, there is a sort of hidden externality in all of this, which is what's called like a walk penalty. Mm -hmm. So Russell Carlton at Baseball Prospectus has written about this a lot. But basically when um, a pitcher has the defense behind him shifted in a certain way, they tend to favor the inside half of the plate and they don't want any cheap hits on the outer half of the plate. And so basically they center their distribution of pitches too far out of the zone and are creating extra walks because of that. 
And so that has like more or less equally offset the gain in BABIP that defensive had from this. And it's like basically been next to nothing. I mean, it's, it's so small, like it's been worth it to do it. Cause it's like 1%, why not grab it? But in terms of like pricing a game, it, it means almost nothing. Now there's tons of like, maybe not tons, but like a small number of players for whom this will actually matter a lot. If you play fantasy or bet props or whatever, there's certain left-handed pull ground ball hitters who obviously would benefit disproportionately. But like, if you're just pricing a total on a game, it's, it's very little. There is this implication I've seen from people that second base defense will matter more. And it seems like there might've been a trend the last few years from sharper analytical teams, like those I named to favor like defensively weak um, second baseman, or at least like not discount them as much. Um, I'm not so sure that's true. Any of the analysis I've done when analyzing like the correlation or, you know, more sophisticated statistical processes of how any of 10 different defensive metrics might apply for a second baseman to runs allowed for the team looks like a pretty meaningless zigzagging line. And I think one of that is because um, they're actually eliminating the depth. I don't think you said Rob, where there's a a small number of infielders now who get an advantage by being a little bit deeper and on the grass. And now they're forced to be on the dirt. So this is understood now, but for years, it wasn't the, the by far most important aspect of fielding in baseball is actually arm strength because your arm strength defines your depth. If you have a big arm, you can be deeper because you have more time to throw. Um, and your depth defines your range. And so really the arm defined all of these things that we think matter. It really just starts with the arm. And so it might actually discount some of the good feelers in my opinion. Um, again, again, this is all something like if the market's eight and a half on a total for the last two years, and now it might be eight and a half over minus 11 or minus 12, you know, it's like next to nothing in my opinion, the shift. Uh, pitch clock. Um, I, I, I mean, this what are is, your thoughts on this also? Yeah, I, I guess just, I, as, a just as a baseball fan. Um, I, I, uh, I don't really mind. I, it seems weird to have a strong opinion about this. I like one small thing is like baseball has like been a pretty ideal, like background noise thing where you don't really have to pay attention. And at least for me watching spring training, you actually like kind of have to pay attention now because it's bang, bang, bang. And so I kind of preferred like just having like noise in the background and like looking over every minute, but now you have to actually concentrate. So I'm not going to allow that to be a time suck. So I'll probably watch less baseball to be honest, but for the average person who watches it for enjoyment, it's probably more enjoyable. I guess though, if you're if you're quantifying it the way that you are, and you think that there's such a marginal impact on run production in the games, like it doesn't really make sense to have a strong opinion one way or another. If if you know if people are to believe what you're saying, I got only so many fucks to give in this life. Yeah, like it's like people that, are getting, getting so one. hung up on this, and like <laughs> oh, like oh, they should they should be allowed to play defense however they want, and the larger bases are going to make it easier to steal bases is like a disgrace to the game. And it's like, I never understood the people get so emotional about this, but stuff, especially since it's going to have such a small impact on the game. Like imagine investing that much of your life, just being angry at a professional sports league. Says, world says the guy who rants more about coaching punting decisions in football than anyone I've ever seen every Sunday. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fair enough. What if, they, what if they like increase the What's the biggest one of those that could be? I, like maybe there's a couple that are five. Those are like usually one or 3%, right? There are some that will exceed like 5%, but you're right. Really? Yeah. You're, you, it is a very valid <laughs> I'm point. just busting your balls. I, I, need to, I need to do like some, an introspective here because. Uh, Rob it, just gets mad if, if, it, if, if it, it affects against my bet. <laughs> it yep, is what it same. is. Um, but uh, no, that's, that's awesome. Uh, interesting info. So I think. 
We'll link Barry Horse's uh, tweet threads actually in the description here for the YouTube, and you can read all about the exact effects, and he goes into great detail on the metrics. I think the overall summary for those who are not going to go read it is that these should have a small impact to certain things. However, in terms of the actual pricing for the games and the totals, it's going to be very minimal, um, if if at all. And I think to be clear on the stolen bases, and it's hard to attribute exactly if that's um, the pitch clock or the pickoff rules or a combination of both. That will lead to like a very meaningful increase in stolen bases. So for sure, if you play fantasy or bet stolen base props, that matters a lot. Um, but I think most people just kind of overrate what a stolen base is worth. Like it's it's something like a fifth of a run, a successful stolen base. So you know, and it's different if there's zero outs or one outs or two outs or if someone's on third or not. But you know, it's it's something like that. And so, like, you know, it, this might be something like um, on the order of uh, if if last few years a total would have been eight and a half flat, maybe it's like eight and a half over minus 15. Yeah. But, you know, that's not nothing, but it's it's not like it's now like nine juice over or anything like it's Got it. Uh, Got it. And for know, those stolen betting, bases aren't that important for those betting. If you do see stolen bases like rack up throughout the first month of the season, don't just go betting all the overs thinking like, oh, overs are going to be way up because the market may have also adjusted by by that time yep. as well. And as Barry Horst mentioned, the totals might just be eight and a half minus 15 over now. Um, one more topic yep. for you, Mr. Horse. <laughs> you are one of the first person, Sir first Horse. People, Sir, Sir, Horse. Sir Horse. You're one of the first people who, um, you know, I, I followed and was introduced to Bitcoin via. I know you're a big Bitcoin truther, if you can call it that. We got to hear essentially your take because anytime this man rants about Bitcoin, it's always worth the read. It's always worth the read. It's always worth the listen. I know you did like a live thing once years ago where you just went on. It was great. So we got to hear, give us some takes for the listeners here. I I just want to add, I think what makes this especially interesting for me, um, I, I basically acquired Bitcoin as a form of getting payment for gambling winnings. And I thought it was a huge scam back in the day. I no longer believe that, but I've heard you in the past also describe yourself as a quote, very risk averse person. Um, and you're a very huge proponent of Bitcoin. So I kind of explain how this came to be and how you, you solidified or got to your current stance on, um, I guess being a huge optimist of Bitcoin moving forwards. So I find it very easy for anybody who has extreme opinions on either direction to be like very dismissive of anybody else who's not in their camp. Um, And I think it makes sense. Like, I mean, anybody who's listening to this podcast, unless you have listeners who are over 110 years old, has only ever lived in like a very debt-based economy and doesn't really know anything else. And um, nothing else has ever even worked. And so maybe they don't like it, but they might feel like nihilist about it. Like, how can I fix this or change it or make the world better with a better money? Um, A helpful metaphor might be if you envision like, maybe like humans are this, this weird species of fish that just swim around the very bottom floor of the ocean. And we're just like floating through life in our own piss and shit. Half the time we get eaten by a shark. The 5% of us who ever even find out that the air exists is usually because there's a hook in our mouth and then we suffocate and get our head chopped off. And most of us just go through life without even knowing that exists up there. And maybe one day some fish came along with this highly sophisticated, ironclad, 
foolproof oxygen tank that we could strap onto ourselves and fly up above the surface and live with humans and evolve. And I know I sound like a like borderline religious cult crazy person when I describe it this way, but this is sort of how I like think about it and why I think a lot of people, why I think there's such like a giant gap in education. So I don't know if you guys want me to do like more than a one minute explainer or like, oh, we do. you know, we a do. 10 minute, you know, whatever. Uh, we, yeah. we got as much time as you have. And, and honestly, I'm going to enjoy this a lot more than, uh, okay. And stop, you know, I probably, uh, as I said, I learned my lesson. Don't be arrogant. I just did like a whole hour talking about myself, but so stop me if I'm like the, rambling. The, the question is your podcast. Yes, exactly. Barry Horse we are podcast. asking you about you because people are interested okay. in that. So you don't have to apologize. Anybody who hates Bitcoin, skip, skip to wherever Zach puts in the description right now. I'm going to disagree just because I don't want to preach to the choir. And if there's somebody who somehow is still listening and is like remotely at all open-minded to at least hear this, um, first off, please do. And second off, if you think everything I'm about to say is idiotic or I explain it poorly or I've lost my mind, please don't discount Bitcoin. Um, I might not be the educator for you and somebody else on the internet might. So like, thank you. Um, the way I'm currently thinking about it is is sort of like for ish different like pillars or, or theses. Um, the first is like how I first got into it, like through sports betting, which is, um, I guess the censorship resistance. So like Alice can send Bob $5 whenever she wants, no matter the time, no one can say no. If she has money, she can send it to anyone in the world, whenever, however much she has. Um, and so for me, just like, I basically back at the time, $300, like I could do the ballpark math. I got something close to a trillion dollars just by adding up like porn, drugs, guns, gambling, uh, fireworks, you know, what, you know, to, like all gray area businesses where it'd be useful to be able to send money without people being able to meddle with it. Donations to WikiLeaks, whatever. Um, what I really missed in all of that analysis is not just that you can send and receive money without permission. Very importantly, you can hold money without permission. And that third thing I completely missed, and in many ways, Bitcoin is the only property that has ever existed. Um, any other physical property is only yours insofar as you can defend it, usually with the threat of violence. So, Johnny, if, if you have a bar of gold and you and me are in the room, you might say that's your bar of gold. And then I pull a gun out of my pocket and point out your head and say it's mine. Whose bar of gold is it? So it would be your bar of gold. <laughs> I think so. But I mean, but, you could try to fight. Maybe okay. See what happens. Before we go on, what if I had? What if I pointed a gun at you and said, "Give me all your coin." It's in my head. The game theory doesn't exist. You just die you with the, the coin, though. It's when, not. It's not that much yeah. better. I could die with the gold bar. I guess you could take it. Yes. Then. No. But you're right. He's at, he's, he, he checks out. Ignore it. It creates the game theory where it is worth killing you for your gold because I will get it if I kill you. You will not get anything other than if you're this machiavellian sadist who gets off on killing people by killing me you will not get anything right he checks um, out i rescind my argument go back you're, you're up yeah. um and so like the implications of this are like really preposterous actually like I, I don't think people have like fully considered what the implication of like having fully guaranteed property rights represents for people um and so that's sort of like my first pillar is like you could call this libertarian adjacent, like freedom, whatever you want to call it, financial freedom. Um, the second is, uh, 
in a way inflation, but my take, you know, you can go listen to macro economists and everyone tell you whatever they think about inflation. What might be more valuable from a computer scientist is, so I, I live in Costa Rica um, and there's this Starbucks farm up on the hill and I went there with my girlfriend a couple weeks ago. Um, it's fucking sick. Like <laughs> honestly, the technology they have in taking these little beans shooting down at like a million miles an hour it has these little like claws, like punching out the ones that are the wrong colors. It shakes them into all the, it was like, honestly, mind blowing the level of sophistication and the technology of like taking a coffee plant and turn it into a bean that you roast and drink from. Um, and I say all that because it's not surprising at all that since 1980, a cup of coffee is 80 times cheaper to produce. This is the effect of technology. You do things better, faster, cheaper, more intelligently. Um, and so when people see that in 1980, a cup of coffee was 50 cents and today it's $5, that's not a 10x inflation. It's something on the order of an 800x inflation when you fact for the deflationary effects that advances in technology should have had by now. So it is a humongous human deficiency to misunderstand exponentials. And for anybody who has no computer science background, there's something called Moore's Law, which is basically the theory that every 18 to 30 months, semiconductor technology basically two X's. So we get double the compute power every two years or so roughly. Um, I don't think people understand how much this has been hidden from us and stolen from us. Um, and like the positive effects of what Moore's law should have had on our lives by now. And it's been completely perniciously hidden via inflation to hide the deflationary effects of technology. Um, so yeah, and in the most generous case, you could say, whatever computers in like the 1960s ish until 1971 had a 10 year, let's say 1950 and be generous. They had a, a 20 year window. So that's 10 two year increments, maybe two to the 10, maybe you a thousand X, maybe. And maybe that reached society. But since, and if you go to WTF happened in 1971.com and you know, there's plenty of graphs to demonstrate all of this. Um, it seems abundantly clear to me that the 25 or so iterations of Moore's law that should have been trickling down to making life amazingly cheap and more beautiful than it is today have been basically stolen from us uh, through like the debt-based system we've been in. And this is no, it's no they, it's not like fuck the Fed, fuck the bankers. It's, you know, their only solution has been this. They're, like the only solution, you cannot let things fail. Like our only way out of this is with an external opt-in technology like Bitcoin. And so it's my belief that eventually when the world is on a Bitcoin standard, we'll see a nearly unthinkable level of abundance in the world due to the deflationary impact of, of technology and that that should be trickling down to society. Um, the third would be like basically Michael Saylor's thesis, which is digital energy. So yeah. um, <clears throat> basically the, the story of our species for the last 100,000 years has just been iterating on channeling energy better. That's basically all we do. Um, and there's actually really no good way to store energy, or we haven't found one at least until now. Um, so if you go through all the ways you could store a billion dollars worth of energy for the next hundred years, there's really no good solution. Obviously, fiat's going to inflate at like a half-life of three and a half, five years, something like this. You'll lose all your money in 30 years. Um, gold has like a 2% inflation rate. You'll have a half-life of like 35 years or so. So um, you'll have something like you'll lose 90% of your money in a century. Uh, you know, if you look at like any of the biggest companies ever, they've all been about like channeling energy or storing it. So like 
why did Apple become massive with the ion batteries and phone to allow mobile revolution where people could have technology anywhere in the world without plugging it into a wall? Why did Marjorie Merriweather the Pope become the most wealthy woman in the history of the world? Her dad basically found vacuum sealing for food and frozen food. And that basically invented um, groceries. So we figured out a way to store energy in the form of calories, which are literally our unit of energy for longer periods of time. And so the reason I bring all this up is like Bitcoin is basically our first ever perfect battery to store um, energy for long time durations with a zero leak. Um, and so the fourth, and if you don't think I'm a crazy person yet, this is like kind of the one where people start losing me, is uh, basically the Jason Lowry thesis of like the end to warfare. Um, so, and this actually isn't even about how you need fiat to have war and you need war to have fiat. It's an entire four and a half billion year history of life on this planet, even from the earliest ones, like a hundred years into existence where like these little membrane cells that they let some stuff in and some stuff out and they're completely unrecognizable as animals today. But like these tiny little microbes all the way up until today has been a consistently iterating cycle of proof of work of these living things fighting over scarce resources. And because of what I was explaining to Johnny earlier about how if I have the gun and he has the gold, it's really mine. Mm -hmm. Humans have not yet developed a way until Bitcoin, in my opinion, to resolve these conflicts over scarce resources without the threat of violence. And this is the first time ever where we've been able to like basically digit digitally abstract warfare into the clouds or more accurately, physically into Bitcoin miners that will definitely need to be physically defended. I'm not suggesting there's no like violence or like threat of bombs or whatever and, and control of different territories, but we can digitally transpose warfare into Bitcoin mining where, you know, war is like the least economic thing basically anyone could do. It's there's no winners. There's severe losers and less severe losers. And the end result is rubble and more expensive energy for everyone. Well, the result of a hash war is there's a severe winner and less severe winner. And the end result is cheaper energy and abundance for everyone in the world. And so I think it's our best way forward towards peace. Sorry for the rant. No, um, there's a lot to unpack there. We got to, we, we got to, I'm not saying we got to go in terms of any episode. We got to go. There's some stuff we got to discuss here. Well, I mean, it's a, a lot more uh, descriptive than when people ask me, why should I own Bitcoin? Rob Let's, just says, cause you could put it into sport. You could settle sports book. No. <laughs> Uh, no, it's actually really interesting, and it's. Uh, I, I think I would be a doing a disservice right now if <laughs> we could talk about this for hours. Let me put it that way, like hours. Um, the last argument, especially interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm more so buy into, let's say, the order of your operations there in terms of one, two, three, four, in terms of the usefulness, um, but. I mean, this is extremely personal and we can certainly not remove this or we can certainly remove this if we want to, but you're a pretty young person. You've described yourself as risk averse. What percentage of your net worth is Bitcoin based right now? Every dollar. Every dollar. Okay. Every dollar you have. Yep. Isn't will be. I mean, like, I'm I'm very open. Like, wait, Bitcoin, Bitcoin specifically? You're saying not yes. no altcoins, by the way, just for the like people at home. So, um, I, this is not like this self righteous thing. Like, Bitcoin's the only thing that's real. It is, 
but I also want to be rich like everyone. Yep. Um, and so, you know, I'm not, I, I don't think like trading shit coins is this immoral thing. The perpetuators and creators of them or people who are convinced that it's some sort of meaningful technology are completely full of shit. So, I mean, they're, they're either evil or they're like deluded horrendous engineers who don't understand what's going on. But uh, yeah, or, like or, me, or I mean, it's, it's, I think more so it's the um, just wanting to make a buck, really. I, I don't know that evil comes into play or, but I, I think there's ulterior motives in a lot of the altcoins that are out there. So one question yeah. I have is this is what I get the most when people ask me about Bitcoin. Okay, so the ownership principle, I'm a very, very firm believer in. This, the second point you made, which was the, I guess, uh, we'll call it inflation hedge. Uh, I don't know what you, what specifically you'd want to call it, but that's the one that I think gets questioned to me the most. Obviously, it's very easy for people to understand why Bitcoin itself is deflationary, given that you can pretty easily explain the having as well as like the limited supply and the fact that you can't just print more Bitcoin. Outside of those two things, which clearly make Bitcoin itself not inflationary, how does Bitcoin solve inflation in the world? That's what people ask me that I, I often struggle to provide a good answer with. I'm interested in what, what you would kind of rebuttal that because they'd still need people to be on Bit, like the Bitcoin standard. Everyone would have to use that and value it as a currency, essentially. Yeah, that, that's my thesis is that will happen. So, so, you, so but why, why, why will it kill inflation? Because there will be no, no money printer button to press. So in theory, how would that go about happening? So right now we have it, you see like a bank collapse, for example, over the past few weeks. Yeah. Where does, where do we now head? This is what I, I can't answer. When people ask me this question, I don't know how to answer. That's why I'm asking it to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think in decades, I, people probably have like suspicions about 2023 with banks. I, I have no clue. Um, it starts with bridging a really massive gap in education because like it's, overwhelmingly obvious to me there's there's we've had a hundred thousand year history of our species of just consistently recycling horrendous forms of money ending in social revolution and replacing it with someone who says i promise i won't inflate it this time and that's just been happening for a hundred thousand years and there's no way out of this with trust in humans we've i think demonstrated i mean you'd be betting a thousand if you bet against that every time on humans so um so I know, yeah, what about like people who currently own like mill millions of acres of land and own countries and things like that. And like old, old school money, different places in the world, different places in, in America, Canada, wherever it might be. Wealth. How are those people then just going to not be wealthy at all? Like, and people who just had and, Bitcoin, and accept that. Yeah. And accept that. Like, and then people that just yeah, I, had Bitcoin earlier are just going to be the wealthy. It's a multi-decade, multi-century process of wealth reallocation in my opinion. And I could, if, I, if I've learned anything, I mean, I look back and cringe at like almost anything I said five years ago, as I assume if this podcast exists in five years, I'll come back and listen and say, you fucking idiot. So, you know, all this is with 10 million grains of salt, but. You know, of course, we're all entitled to change our opinions based off of data. And like, I mean, that just happens and things that we learn. I, I think the, the, the point you bring up about, um, like, I, I think la general lack of education is a real problem and barrier to entry is a problem with crypto. And that's my biggest, um, I'm pretty tech savvy guy. It was very easy for me to, to, to understand how to trans, you know, how to purchase crypto on an exchange, how to transfer it over to a cold storage wallet. And there's without saying this arrogantly, that's a, 
it's tough for an average person. And by the way, like, I, again, it's, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but there's a significant portion of the population that has just gone through their entire lives without like with a blind eye to this. And they're like, this is just so much more difficult than everything I'm accustomed to. Um, I used to consult for offshore sports books. Very clearly, offshore sports books have payment processing issues with banks in a lot of cases. So they would run a ton of educational um, materials, literally invest tens of millions of dollars a year in educational campaigns on Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in general. Um, but ultimately, you still get so much that filters to Google page one about crypto being a scam, Bitcoin being a scam, um, getting scammed out of, of Bitcoin, the price um, deviations or the variance in price, volatility, all of this stuff, there's just such a negative aura around it consistently that I'm not saying it can't that can't change, but it just seems like a massive barrier, an obstacle in this becoming widely accepted. Maybe they need more money to be stolen from them. Necessity is the mother invention. I mean, you could see an obese person, maybe they're 400 pounds and don't want to lose weight yet. Maybe they will when they're 500. I, I don't know. Maybe the same will happen with people and their money. Fair enough. If but someone then, I mean, to... you can't you can't be 12,000 pounds. So people will explode and capitulate at some point. Yep. If someone were to ask you, um, why is Bitcoin so, like, why is there so much variance in the price of Bitcoin? What would be a response there? Uh, people speculate and, you know, there's two sides to the fraction. There's the numerator and denominator. So people attribute a lot of the variance to the numerator and ignore the noise in the denominator. And people you, think in very short time frames. Well, do you think that's like a, a barrier to Bitcoin's growth? Knowing that, you know, you could put your whole net worth into Bitcoin. In theory, you have a million dollars today and have 700,000 tomorrow. Whereas if you, if you had it in a bank, if you measure your net worth in dollars, that's yeah. what I was going to say. Like bang. It, but, but, so <laughs> but no, but in theory you, you like, let's be realistic. I, I love to joke around and say that as well. Yes. It's going to be just one Bitcoin, but if you need to buy food today, then like you do have to convert to dollars as of now, as of right now, of course. But like, as of today, you, you, you it's going to be tough. You can't pay your rent in Bitcoin. And when you say, yes, you can convert so, yeah. You can, can you pay your rent in a fixed Bitcoin amount? Like, Hey, my rent zero point zero point zero two Bitcoin a month. Like, is that something that you can do? I don't think that is widely available. Maybe, maybe one of every hundred thousand. So so the question is, do I, do I think volatility in price is a barrier? Do you, do I think, do you think the volatility, do you think it's reasonable to keep a hundred percent of your net worth in Bitcoin right now? Um, given the volatility of it. Yes. Why? What else am I going to own? Well, in theory, based on your theory, there's nothing else you can possibly own. Yeah. So fair, fair, fair enough. I mean, it's, have you ever considered putting like, I don't know, keeping 80 in Bitcoin, 20% in fiat currency or other assets? When, when Bitcoin's like monetized, but I mean, I'm sure you guys have done the ballpark. I mean, if, if there's 1%, some of those four pillars I said are right. This is like a hundred, 200 trillion type market, not 300 billion or whatever it is today. So, you know, okay. maybe when it's over a million dollars and it's properly monetized, but not until. All right. All well, right. I'm not going to lie. You've made some compelling arguments here that might increase my Bitcoin net worth uh, again in the recent, in the coming months. But yeah, I mean, um, I'm, I'm, what's crazy here is like, 
we're not talking about this is what all the arguments make sense to me they definitely all make sense but also when you look at someone like barry horse right now he's all in he's all in. that's worth something like he's not saying these arguments and then saying yeah i own a little bit of bitcoin and by the way for those who have followed this guy since 2018 or earlier we're not talking about like a million dollar net worth here fyi so it's it is definitely something where it's it's interesting to say the least it is it's very very interesting Mr. Oh. Mr. Sir Horse. All right, Sir Horse. Um, we'll let you go on this note. We ask the same question to every guest as our final question. Um, a lot of them actually just say, buy Bitcoin. I would have bought Bitcoin. But we're not, ho- I mean, that, you can't actually say that because you have 100% of your net worth in Bitcoin. You well, can't he say did it. buy Bitcoin five he, years He did. Ago. So if you could go back five years and talk to a previous version of yourself, what advice would you give to your former self? Can I give two? Yes, of course. Uh, one is humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So when I previously described like the arrogance that started to breed within me from like this crazy Twitter run, plus, you know, the financial success away from Twitter. Um, like I said, I was probably vaguely aware if I'm fully honest with myself of like some of that happening and basically intentionally chose to continue to be that way. I think because growing up around sports, seeing like, you know, like Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, like competition porn, I'm the best, all these athletes talking about how good they are. Um, there's this like natural hubris you have to have back to like our CLV conversation where like, yeah, there's all these algorithms, all these models, people paying tons of money. I am significantly better than the perfectly weighted average of all those systems. I'm going to bet like that takes like a certain level of arrogance to even get started. And so to me, I think I had probably deceived myself into thinking that like the only way to maintain success is by like continuing to think that I'm amazing and the exact opposite could not be more true. Um, I look back so much at like the way I talked and things I might've said. And you know, again, like, it's not like I forgive myself, you know, I was 23 years old, like had some cool stuff happen to me. Like, it's not like I'm beating myself up, but Definitely, like, I look back and cringe at a lot of the way I carried myself as um, almost shutting myself off from ever potentially learning something new mm-hmm. and knowing that I must look so stupid to everybody who is significantly above me. Um, and that when you're consistently talking about, like, yourself or anything, either they're below you and they're going to think you're a bragging douchebag or they're above you and they are smarter than you and you're like, wow, this idiot. And so, like, there's just no sense in all of this. I'd rather just listen and learn to a lot of people. Um and just because uh, it, it's not like this 2D spectrum where you have to trade off humility with self-belief. Like you can have tremendous belief in yourself just by knowing you're a completely average human, be- human being and that just that is enough to accomplish like amazing things in life. If you understand you have this incredible organ in your head called the brain that you can train and learn new skills and improve and just iterate and compound all these things you learn. And you don't need to be like, number one or 10 or a hundred or a thousand out of 8 billion. Like you can be number 4 billion and achieve amazing things. Um, The second would be to be very careful with I am statements. So there's an amazing book. If any of your listeners like reading called the master and his emissary by Ian McGilchrist. Um, If you don't like reading, he has like a 30 minute podcast or like a YouTube video with Jordan Peterson and then a full like 90 minute podcast also. Um, basically the book explains how 
um, this trend of like left hemisphere of the brain and right hemisphere of the brain has been around like as long as neural networks have existed. So like even like a billion years ago, there was like these weird sea anemones that had these neural networks in their mouth and it was the exact same thing. Left side was like what we today perceive as like math, science, things, analysis, and right side being like creativity, thoughtfulness, people, relationships. Biologically and evolutionarily, what those things actually are from is sort of like um, the left side is sort of like be the predator, like go get the food, be detail-oriented, seek something. And the right side is sort of like error correction, anomaly detection, survive, do not be the prey. And so to lean into either side is probably incorrect. And so like, even like you learn about this in elementary school, even like what type of brain are you? And like, it's, it's almost like encouraged to like lean into like being an extremist or like I'm a left brain maximalist. Um, and I, I certainly was a left brain maximalist and, uh, this cost me hugely. I mean, we could do like a whole segment on, uh, the 2019 baseball, just like the literal baseball itself is like a fascinating thing. Yeah. But, um, during that, so I, I talked before, I, I pretty infamously, um, had a bad year of baseball in 2019. And so, um, for me, I would be tracking like extra inning results, like blown saves, all these things and be very left brain analytical. Here's the numbers. I'm just getting screwed. Poor me. This is such bad luck without the anomaly detection of my right brain being fully turned on to appreciate there's a literal complete physical change in the ball that the sport is being played with. That probably means more than nothing. Maybe these blown saves being completely biased against you are not completely random. And so I look back so much at that year as like, it's, it's almost painful because it, it not, not only should I have avoided having a bad year with my understanding of like how I understand the ball now. And, you know, luckily this paid off with the first six weeks or so last season where basically the exact opposite happened. But I look back and be like, not only should I have not lost, I mean, that should have been one of my best years ever is exploiting and understanding that because I would have been very quick to adapt to. And I was just so obsessed with like, I'm getting good prices. Here's the math. I'm on the right sides. This shouldn't be happening rather than allowing any sort of like artistic creativity of like even considering that my model could be wrong, which also ties closely to the arrogance thing is I was so convinced what I had was the nuts. Like how would I ever budge off it? Well, this has been a very compelling and fascinating conversation. I uh, really appreciate you joining us. Uh, for those who want to follow Barry Horse, first name Barry, last name Horse on Twitter, it's at Barry Horse underscore 29. Uh, appreciate all of your time. Uh, wish you all the best this upcoming baseball season. Hope you kill it. Hopefully those edges go back up and maybe we're not on the decline. Uh, really appreciate you joining us here. Thanks, guys. This has been Circles Off, episode number 95. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Hit the subscribe button if you do enjoy the content. Like it on YouTube. If you're listening in audio form, rate and review five stars. We'll catch everyone next week. Peace. Peace.